Shalom everyone, today I want to talk to you about the loss of innocence, about the heartbreak that we experience whenever we lose our innocence in a certain area, and how can we regain, recover a kind of new innocence, a second, more mature kind of innocence. That's what we can hope for when we experience this kind of loss. So I'm going to be reading to you from my latest Points to Ponder column for the weekly Torah portion of Kitisa. And I'll be adding some things um, ad-lib, you know, as, as I go along. What's more painful than when something precious breaks and cannot be mended? I'm not just talking about broken objects, which are usually replaceable, although some are certainly irreplaceable and their loss is very upsetting. I'm also, and especially, talking about matters of the heart. For example, innocence lost. If a child looks up to his father and believes the father is perfect and righteous, and then he discovers his father is really sinning in some way, whether privately or worse, publicly, he's heartbroken and he will never be the same. If someone believes in the good-heartedness of people and then innocently, naively, falls prey to a scam that leaves him penniless, he'll never be able to trust people again the way that he did before. If a young woman in love gives her heart to a man, trusting him to reciprocate her with the same kind of love, only then to discover that he was just taking advantage of her, the wound in her heart, too, will live a bitter, permanent scar. These things are painful, but also unavoidable. We grow up within protective incubators, happily sheltered from and oblivious to many of the harsh facts of life. Our soul is in many ways like a great wave rolling out from the heart of an ocean of innocence, only sooner or later to be shattered on the rocks of reality. The loss of innocence is a one-way street. In the Torah, the topic of loss of innocence is most prominently expressed in the story of the sin of the golden calf. After weeks of wandering the desert, the people of liberated slaves arrive at the foot of the mountain where God is about to reveal himself to them. The heavens open, there's thunder and lightning, the voice of God bursts forth from the cloud, and the faithful shepherd Moses ascends for 40 days of seclusion, intending to return with the long-awaited Torah. The 40 days pass, but just before they end, something cracks. Maybe it was Moses' delay, maybe it was an act of the devil, maybe it was sorcery on the part of the Erevrav, the mixed multitude that joined the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. But one thing is certain, the people fell from grace. They tripped, they fell, they yielded to the seduction and were tempted to replace their flesh and blood shepherd with an inanimate idol made of gold and jewelry around which they start dancing frantically in intoxication. Everyone lost their innocence there. The nation, which never believed it could fall so hard. Aaron, who didn't think his stalling tactics would lead to this. This is how the Jewish sages explain his seeming cooperation in the creation of the, of the Kalf. And also Moses, shocked to see what his people could degenerate into. Even God himself feigns disappointment and anger. He says, I have seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, and my anger will burn against them, and I shall consume them. Exodus 32, verses 9 to 10. 
Of course, all this doesn't happen, but it shows us just how shocking and devastating this event was. The crisis assumes, at the end, a very physical form, a very almost symbolic form, an image. The tablets of the law lie shattered, flung down at the mountainside. The words of the living God reduced to shards. Once innocence is lost, one stands at a crossroads. One path is that of trying to put the broken pieces back together, to frantically gather them and, and, and try to glue them back together, to pretend as if nothing has happened. Loss of innocence is so painful that it will try anything to turn the wheel back. This is the way of romantics who refuse to come to terms with their loss. Another option, often chosen after the first one fails, is to place the shards on a pedestal to turn the crisis itself into idolatry. If my heart is broken, that means the whole world is broken. The world is one great abyss at the bottom of which we're all trying to find our way. There's no hope for change, for love, for hope itself even. All we can do is stare back at the darkness, at the nothingness. This is the way of cynics for whom the hole in their hearts has become a dark source of life for them. But somewhere between the fool's paradise and the hell of sobriety, there lies a third way, which combines both. This approach doesn't attempt to glue back the shards, nor does it leave them scattered on the floor, on the ground. It collects them, it puts them in an ark, and it sculpts new tablets alongside them. That's what Moses did. From then on, throughout the children of Israel's years of wandering in the wilderness, even upon entering the promised land, and throughout the first temple, the life of Israel revolved around an ark which contained two sets of tablets, the second whole tablets and the first broken tablets. And they would lie in the ark side by side, the whole tablets and the broken tablets. This third way is called Second innocence. Second innocence is uh, somewhat like the first one. It's similar. It's also a kind of innocence. But it's also the opposite in almost every way. First, it's not the first innocence. It was preceded by another innocence. And this second innocence vividly remembers what happened to the first one. We know we were innocent and we lost our innocence. In other words, the second innocence isn't naivete. It's not a naive, childish kind of innocence. It's a mature, sober kind of innocence. It's an innocence that acknowledges, that recognizes that there are bad things in the world. It's, it stares them in the face and marches on despite those things. Not because it imagines or convinces itself that nothing is bad, nothing is wrong, everything is perfect. There's no self-delusion in this kind of innocence. We see the world as it is, for what it is. We see all the bad things that broke our first innocence, and we say, yes, but I refuse to accept that is the case, and I want to believe that there's something better, that there's hope, there's something more to life than this. Second difference. While our first innocence is something that we're born into, the second innocence is something we choose willfully and consciously. We know we can choose differently. We could go the skeptical, pessimistic route, which sees only darkness, 
but we choose not to, despite the warm embrace of victimhood that this kind of cynical path offers us. Rather, we choose the path of hope and rectification, despite being well aware that there is another choice. Coming out of these two differences, there emerges a third difference, which is the most important one. Second innocence is unbreakable. It's not fragile. It doesn't break easily. It can't really be broken. Why? It's immune to the possibility of breakage simply because it's been broken already. It already contains within it the possibility of the loss of innocence. It remembers the first innocence being lost. It knows that innocence is something that is lost. And because this is a new, mature kind of innocence, it contains within it this rupture already. It, it, it's both wholeness, completeness, and incompleteness at the same time. In, in this sense, this second kind of innocence is the one that's most worthy of the Hebrew name for innocence. The Hebrew name for innocence, both the first and the second, we use the term tmimut. Tmimut literally means wholeness. So the first mimut is just whole. It's all about wholeness, but then that wholeness gets broken. But the second innocence is even more whole. Why? Because it encompasses, it contains both a sense of wholeness and a sense of brokenness at the same time. That means it's more whole than just knowing what wholeness is and not knowing what brokenness is. The 20th century was a century of crises. We lost our innocence in a very deep way. Secularization robbed us of our innocent faith in God. Science stole our innocent wonder at the enchantment of nature. Globalization deprived us of our innocence regarding the uniqueness of our own specific culture. And then, when all we had left was faith in ourselves, in mankind, came two world wars and took even that. After all these crises, is it any wonder we're so angry and bitter? Yet, we needn't succumb to bitter cynicism, nor drown in sweet daydreams. There's a third way, living with the shards and hewing new tablets alongside them. This path is one of not plastering over the cracks, but not falling into them either. It's continuing believing in humanity, in the soul, in love, in God, in hope. But this time, just not out of habit, but out of choice. So the 20th century isn't just a tragedy of lost faith. It's also an invitation to embrace another kind of faith, an open-eyed faith, one that is conscious of the possibility of doubt and lives with it in peace. That's the original faith of Sinai that we've carried in our hearts all these years, tablets and fragments, side by side. Shabbat Shalom. Hi everyone and thanks for watching. If you like this video, please leave a comment. I'd like to hear what you think. Also like, subscribe to the channel, share the video with your friends. And if you want to help me make more videos, please consider becoming a supporter via Patreon. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you.